Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to this episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. In this episode, I sat down to chat with Dr. John Stryker from the University of Arizona. John's interest in signaling cascade led him to work on heart failure, but it's his time in Dr. Laura Bond's lab that led him to GPCRs. Today, at the University of Arizona, John and his team use cell and molecular biology, as well as animal techniques to find and characterize new signaling regulators of opioid receptors in living animals. Before jumping into this episode, I want to take a moment to talk to you about the Dr. GPCR Summit, which is starting next week. This summit is unlike any other meeting you've attended before, and we are very excited about it. Think of it as a Netflix type of GPCR Summit. For more details, to register, and to take a look at the fantastic program we have, please visit drgpcr.com summit 2020. If you have any questions regarding the summit or regarding this podcast, please join us on our Dr. GPCR Club on LinkedIn. And now, let's dive into our episode with John. Hello, everybody. Uh, today, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. John Streicher from the University of Arizona. He is currently an assistant professor at the Department of Pharmacology. Hi, John. Thank you for being here. Hi, Yamina. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm happy that you're here uh, with us today. So as I mentioned, you're an assistant professor currently. Mm-hmm. Um, how Can you tell us a little bit more about your career and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually didn't start out studying GPCRs, really, and I didn't start out studying opioids and pain, which is what I'm doing right now. And so when I started my graduate career, I didn't really have any firm ideas on what I wanted to do. I started grad school in 1999. I started kind of casting around, seeing what looked interesting to me. And the one thing that really kind of struck me and something that I've stayed with my whole career is signal transduction. So you have the receptors, they get activated by the drugs, they produce this protein cascades downstream, and then you get some sort of cellular and then tissue whole animal response, right? So I'm really interested in that in-between space, that signaling, the kinases, the, you know, the, the calcium signaling, all those bits and pieces. To me, it's like this really cool puzzle, and figuring out how those puzzle pieces fit together is really rewarding. And so in graduate school, I was studying signaling, but it was in the context of uh, heart failure, So how heart stresses would turn into heart failure in a disease state. I was studying P38 MAP kinase and and, uh, one of its downstream kinases and sort of figuring out how activation of these kinases would contribute to disease. So I kind of linked it to COX-2 and some of the, into some physiological changes. And so that was great. And I enjoyed my, that project a lot. Uh, But and I still enjoy the signaling, but what I kind of decided to, that I needed to do as I started to move into my postdoctoral fellowship was to go upstream a bit and to start looking at receptors. And that's kind of where, because I was looking at these kinases, but it wasn't really downstream of any particular receptor. We were just manipulating these kinases in, in a stress state and sort of seeing what would happen. And so I wanted to move upstream to the receptors. And again, I started sort of looking around. I wasn't like married to any particular receptor system because I didn't know receptors that well. I just knew signaling. And who I came across was a Dr. Laura Bond at the Scripps Research Institute, which is which was my postdoctoral mentor. And I didn't know it at the time, but of course she was very prominent in the opioid and pain field and looking for new ways to make pain drugs that would not cause as many side effects, which is a, a mission that I've taken on and, and continue to work on in my own way. 
And so that was a great experience. So still understanding signaling. So Laura in particular was interested in arrestin, beta arrestin and, and arrestin signaling and creating bias ligands that don't recruit beta arrestin. Um, uh, but, but, you know, much more of the upstream as well, the receptor activation, the molecular pharmacology. And in her lab, I learned a lot more about how GPCRs work, about how opioid receptors work, and about drug discovery. And then I've tried to sort of synthesize all these pieces together into my own work now, where I am very interested in signal transduction, but in the context of the opioid receptors, you know, figuring out what are the, once the receptors are activated, you have this, all these cascades get turned on, like what are those proteins, what are their mechanisms, how do they get turned into physiological changes, and uh, you know, what, what, what can we do with that information? Like what new drugs can we make? How can we manipulate this to improve opioid therapy? Because as we all know, there's a huge opioid abuse and overdose crisis that I would like to do my part to try to fight. Yeah, it is, it is definitely a challenge. And you know, if we could come up with molecules where we could tune the receptor function then, uh, then it would be, uh, it's, it's everybody's dream at this point. Um, so you mentioned that before getting into uh, Dr. Laura Bond's uh, group said where she studied GPCRs, you were looking at cast signaling cascades um, in the heart. Were you stimulating, how were you stressing the heart? How were you stimulating these cells? What were you using? So we had a few different ways of doing it. So one way would be to sort of simulate a, uh, what's called a pressure overload. So you would put, literally put a band, like a stricture, around the ascending aorta, um, and that would provide a, pr a pressure backflow into the heart. So sort of simulating a high blood pressure mm -hmm. you know, state. Of course, in the mice, this takes like two weeks. In a human being, it might take you know, 30 years to get the pathologies, so it's much faster. But it's sort of try to sort of simulate that kind of that heart sort of dysfunction. And the heart responds. It gets thicker. And over time, as it, that malignant stress doesn't abate, it does turn thicker, but that becomes maladaptive. And then the, it starts to die. It thins out. The ventricles sort of bloom. So it progresses from hypertrophy to sort of this dilation and then failure. Um, and that process is, it occurs in humans as well. And so we use sort of that sort of a more physiological or naturalistic way to induce the stress. And then I would, you know, knock out or use an inhibitor or whatever to hit these kinases and then see what would happen in terms of physiology, in terms of the molecular changes. Uh, but we had other methods as well. So another one that we used was a transgenic method where we turned on this kinase P38 only in the heart and just ramped it up, this stress responsive kinase, and that alone was enough to produce a, a different kind of heart failure, but it produced heart failure. And then I would sort of study what were the details and what's happening there. Great. So it was it was a mouse model, but also a physical alteration of of the heart. I was wondering if there is any way of doing it more uh, pharmacologically with compounds or giving some, yeah. some drug to mice. No, absolutely. So what I tried first, it didn't work that well. But what I tried first, and I'm not the, of course, I didn't invent this. Lots of people have been doing this, but I would give like a beta adrenergic agonist, like isoproteranol, like infuse that uh, with a, a, a mini pump. And the hearts got bigger, like a little bit, but they didn't produce sort of that dramatic phenotype that makes it easy to get published and <laughs> figure out mechanisms and what's going on. So that's when we moved to the pressure overload and then and also the transgenic models. Maybe it wasn't fast enough. Maybe it was mimicking more what happens in the humans and it would have taken a longer yeah. time to do so. So you'd mentioned that you got to working on opioid receptors. Here's my next question. Do you have a favorite in the opioid receptor family? Yeah. So uh, the mu, I guess, would be my favorite. That's the one I spend most of my time on. But uh, really, I work on all of them. 
so the mu is what I'm mostly studying in terms of our basic science work, trying to identify molecular mechanisms. But those other two are always creeping in there. So the, the delta and the kappa both have sort of unique pharmacology and ways that you may be able to manipulate them to sort of improve opioid outcomes. So um, I'm not really the pioneer on this work, but I'm a co-investigator to sort of as part of the team to look at multi-target ligands that will activate the mu receptor to produce uh, analgesia, but will manipulate the other two receptors, the delta and the kappa, in some desired way to reduce the side effects and make things better. Um, so at the delta receptor, for instance, uh, there's a lot of work from the past showing that you act that you block this receptor, you block some of those side effects of standard mu agonists like morphine without compromising the analgesia. Um, ironically enough, uh, agonists of the delta receptor also produce beneficial <laughs> effects when combined. So we have worked on both mu delta agonists as well as mu agonist delta antagonists. Both have benefits. I still don't fully understand why no one does. Mm -hmm. um, and then the kappa is also a big target. So kappa has sort of been identified as one of the key um, transducers of stress in the central nervous system. And so you have, and of course, stress contributes to, um, as part of the process and contributes to pain, chronic pain, side effects of, of uh, both chronic pain and opioids. And so a lot of people are pursuing kappa antagonists as uh, novel therapeutics. So my, my uh, collaborator and colleague, Dr. Frank Pareca here at the University of Arizona is kind of big in that, you know, other scientists as well, like Jose Marón Concepcion. And, um, you know, I, some of the work I did in Laura's lab also was looking at kappa agonists and antagonists that may be able to manipulate this receptor to produce better outcomes. So, so they all have their charms, but I guess the mu is the one I spend most of my time on. Okay. Um, since there's three of them, they must activate differential uh, signaling pathways. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So this is one of my favorite topics. So I always talk about this with my students and people don't think about this. I mean, plenty of people do, but a lot of the students don't think about this is that you have these three different receptors, the mu, delta, and the kappa. And in fact, there's plenty of others that share fundamental molecular pharmacology similarities. In most respects, they're very similar to each other. And they all primarily couple to the G-alpha I um, uh, subclass of, of uh, G proteins, right? And so in theory, they should kind of do the same thing, but they produce these different physiological outcomes, right, from each other. And so part of that is going to be organization within a circuit, right? So you have, you know, whether or not the receptor is presynaptic, postsynaptic, which neurons it's on, kind of, that is how you can get some specificity out of even the same uh, sort of signaling. But if you organize it differently in, in the brain circuit, you're going to get a different outcome. So that's one explanation. But the explanation I am pursuing more strongly is the way that the signaling is organized differently downstream of these receptors. So you can have the same, you know, signaling molecules that do different things. So perfect example would be ERKMAP kinase. ERKMAP kinase does like a million things. People have described it as doing just almost anything you can imagine. And in my own work, I've described it as promoting uh, opioid antinociception. So you give an opioid drug, you, you, you block ERK, and oh, wow, we blocked the antinociception. Um, and I didn't invent that. Other people have kind of observed, but we've tied it into some of our other work. And but, you know, so it's doing that. But in the spinal cord, strong pain activates ERK-MAP kinase to promote chronic pain and pain responses. And, you know, in cancer, ERK <laughs> is a, uh, a mitogen that uh, drives cell, cell division and cell proliferation. So you have all these different roles, but it's the same molecule. 
And so you can't explain specificity by, well, it, 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 only, bind, or it only activates these certain downstream things. It just is not going to work that way. It's too different. And so what I'm really interested in is the way these things are organized. And so you can have scaffold proteins, you know, like ACAP or, or these, you know, there's plenty of them. You have scaffold proteins that can sort of organize these molecules into little packages of specific signaling next to the receptors that are involved, like the opioid receptor or adrenergic receptor or whatever you're studying. And thus you can have this, this the same protein if it's sort of localized and put into this little sub-molecular circuit differently from the ERK-MAP kinase over here, you might be able to get a different kind of outcome. And studying that organization is also very interesting and a big part of what I'm what I'm interested in, um, because you know you have to have a way to get specificity. I mean, the, and the, actually, the G alpha eyes are another perfect example. I, there are four G alpha I proteins, and like I don't even know the number, but a couple of hundred G alpha I couple, or at least you know one or two hundred G alpha I coupled receptors, the four proteins downstream. Obviously, there's you're getting that specificity from somewhere. Definitely. For example, for G, G proteins have been shown to also uh, go into the nucleus and modulate the expression of genes, which is phenomenal in, in that sense. Um, we're talking about uh, specificity and signaling. Uh, there have been many publications about the delta opioids and the opioid receptors saying that, well, you if you want the perfect drug to activate only one pathway and not the other, G proteins and not beta restins to have less side effects. What is the status on that? What are your thoughts on uh, signaling, biosignaling? So just to be clear, I, I, I did worked on biosignaling in Laura's lab, but I kind of struck out in my own direction when I started my own lab. So I'm not actively working on making biosligands now. So this is a, you know, sort of an informed outsider that's, that's commenting on this. And um, it's, it's a little bit uncertain right now. So there have been some challenges in the field for sure. So there were some early, early and current successes, particularly from Laura, but not only from Laura. You know, Brian Roth, Brian Shredchet, Ashish Manglik was first author on the paper with PZM21. So you've had sort of description of these ligands and sort of showing out our TRB130 from uh, Jonathan Violin and the Trevina company, sort of showing how these could be beneficial. They didn't produce as much respiratory depression, you know. So there's benefit to that. Laura's cell paper is certainly the best defense of this idea. But recently, there have been challenges, right? So TRV-130 went through phase three trials. The, the Trevina took it to the FDA, and essentially it was, it was uh, voted down, like denied. I don't know the exact name of the process, but denied approval for the FDA as not showing sufficient benefit over current therapeutics. So it didn't have that. It really didn't sort of hold that safety benefit really didn't sort of hold up. Uh, as well, there have been failures to replicate um, some of these ligands by other labs, in particular, the, uh, like Graham Henderson, mm -hmm. uh, Matt Christie, and uh, oh, I knew I'd forget somebody. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend anyone. Sorry if I forget names. But there, oh, uh, Stefan Schultz yeah. uh, have been trying to replicate some of these results, you know, not, rep not replicating the, the, the ligand results. Uh, Stefan Schultz made a very nice knock-in mouse that had the mu receptor, all the phosphorylation sites, on the C-terminus were replaced with alanine. So you, in theory, you could get um, arrest and recruitment. The interesting thing about that mouse is that it did show less desensitization and tolerance, which kind of makes sense because it's not recruiting the arrest. And that does agree with the uh, arrest and knockout sort of earlier work, but it didn't show the benefits in, in respiratory depression and constipation. And then there was a recent effort to simply just replicate the arrest and knockout studies that Laura pioneered and uh, using clean cro uh, back crossed mouse lines and those were also unable to replicate. 
And so, you know, I'm not in a position to make a judgment. I think there's a lot more work to be done, particularly basic science work to identify what's going on here. But these replication failures do make it a challenge to, to point to that and say, yes, that's the, that's the, the, the ticket. We're going to do that. And so, I, you know, I think the field has got to dig into the basic science some more and really figure out what's going on. And, and in the meantime, that's kind of what I'm trying to do from a different angle is just pursue alternate strategies to, uh, you know, new ways to make a new, a new ligands that won't be as addictive or whatever, um, based on my own work. Definitely. I had a discussion um, in a recent episode that will come out soon from the podcast with Dr. Graciela Pinero, and they've tested multiple compounds in this context from, I think, Pfizer. And what they've discovered is that they didn't have a clean cut uh, you know, beta restin or G protein uh, bias, but what they had is partial agonists, depending yeah. on, on what pathway we, you were looking at. Yeah, right. So different pathways, you have different levels of amplification. So a partial agonist in one is going to look more like a full agonist in another. So what you pick really is important. And there actually was another paper that came out recently, Mary Canals, who I mentioned as someone to talk to on the podcast, was I believe the senior author on that paper, demonstrating or at least suggesting that the 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 benefits to bias could in fact be benefits to low intrinsic or due to uh, low intrinsic efficacy of the compounds rather than the arrested bias as an alternate explanation. That's fantastic. I'll look up that paper. Um, getting back to you, to the mu opioid receptors, what is the status of the research in the context of, you know, opioid addiction and pain and nociception? Can you tell us more about the work that you're doing and also what's known in the literature? Absolutely. So, I mean, there's just been a, a tremendous advance in the basic science understanding of how all this works, right? How in, how nociception works, like being sensed by trip channels and, and other sort of nociceptors in the surface of the skin and other places, how that gets transmitted to the spinal cord, how that gets transmitted to the brain, you know, affective processing, the role of the amygdala, you know, so there's, there's just been a huge growth in the knowledge, basic science knowledge of how all this works. You know, that's been go that's not due to me. That's been going back decades uh, by lots of lots of different groups, um, and so that has been a great thing and a great advance, right? Uh, the the problem, of course, is that uh, as we all know, that hasn't yet translated into the the new magic drug that's going to make everything better. Um, it's it just we you know people have tried a lot of different approaches. So Nectar one eighty one was a, also a recent one that tried to just basically slow the drug down uh, so that you wouldn't get this fast spike. Of, of euphoria, sort of like a methadone type approach. Uh, and that was also, I, I just was informed, was voted down at the FDA. So there's lots of different approaches and people are trying to use this basic science knowledge, but we just haven't been able to make that advance. We just haven't. Um, and you know, that's, I don't, that's not anyone's fault. It's just a difficult problem to solve. And so we're, we're, there are lots of people trying lots of different approaches, and I can only think that eventually one of them will be successful. Let's say, what do you think, uh, what is missing? What do we need? Do we need more models? Do we need more funding? Right. Do we need more time? Well, I'm always going to argue for more funding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the HEAL initiative actually has been very helpful in that regard, and I've been a beneficiary of, of those funds. Uh, so the Help End uh, Addiction Long-Term Initiative uh, that gave money to the NIH to study this. Um, so that has been a, a great help to our to the recent pain and opioid community. Um, so we always are going to need more time. We're always going to need more funds. I can't, you know, I, I'm not in a position to say what is the missing thing. There's been a lot of dis, you know disagreement discussion on this. So there's a whole school of thought that says that we're using the wrong pain models. Uh, 
in the in the lab. So it, in in most in most pain labs, including my own, we use sort of these simple reflexive models. Like you poke the animal, you you use heat, you you know you're, you're kind of poking them <laughs> somehow, and then you look at how they respond. You know, so that they flick the tail, they would draw the paw, lick the paw, jump, you know, whatever. They have some sort of this this response. And the argument goes is that this isn't really what human patients are concerned about, right? Human patients are concerned about the pain of daily living and pain that keeps them from doing their daily tasks. And so there's been a lot of literature that's looking at more affective, mental, emotional aspects of pain, assays to get at that. Again, my colleague Frank Brecca has, has done a lot of work using condition place preference to look at this aspect, as well as others, of course. Um, other models like uh, wheel running, Mike, uh, Mike Morgan at Washington State has a great model on this. Um, you know, like a gait analysis, like actually just watching how they, how they, how they, how they walk, uh, burrowing, nest, nest building. So all sort of these normal activities that get suppressed by pain. The argument goes, if you can look at those, those may actually be more translatable to human beings. So and that's not an argument that's been solved. I'm just sort of describing, you know, one of those, one of those arguments, but I think there's certainly something to that. And then, you know, um, and then at, at the end of the day, we, it's just hard to get around the fact that evolution's a scavenger. So it, it, it did not evolve the opioid receptors only to be involved in the pain um, pathways. It's used in multiple pathways, including the pain pathway. And any drug you take is going to hit everything. And it, it's just hard to get around that fact. Um, so I think we just have to kind of have to keep trying. And that's where I my own work, if, uh, if you want me to go into that. Of course, yes. Yeah, so, so where I'm looking at is that signaling aspect, as I mentioned, the signal transduction. And of course, the basics of the opioid signal transduction have been known for a long time, right? So you have the G-alpha-I that I mentioned, um, you have the beta-gamma subunit, which seems to couple to G-protein inwardly rectifying potassium channels in the postsynaptic density to shut down transmission. And then you have the, the, the G-alpha-I blocking C-amp that blocks PKA or reduces PKA, which reduces voltage-gated calcium channels in the presynaptic. Both of this sort of reduces neuronal transmission of the nociceptive pathway. So that has been known for a long time, but it's clear to me that that's an incomplete picture. So I mentioned ERK, MAP kinase. You, you, you can look in any textbook that studies or that, that will tell you about the um, signal transduction of pain relief downstream of the opioid receptors. Not a single one that I'm aware of has ERK-MAP kinase in that pathway. And yet, if we give an ERK-MAP kinase inhibitor in our testing, we can block antinociception completely in the brain. So clearly it's doing something really important, but we don't know what. And my argument would be beyond those basics, we don't have a strong grasp on the signal, the signal assume, if you will, of the opioid receptors and you know what are those intricate links what are all those molecular mechanisms even on many of the things that have been described like say the arrestin work there's still not a basic science mechanism behind that like how is that coupling or changing respiratory depression or dependence we don't know and you know we don't have good signaling hypotheses or explanations for how a lot of this stuff is happening and so that is where i sort of took my love of signaling that i developed in the heart and really started to apply it to the pain and opioid field said, okay, there's a gap here. Um, let me try to fill it in my own small way. And one of the things that I'm working on is a chaperone protein called heat shock protein 90. So this is hearkening back to this idea of organization, right? That you have signaling that's organized differently in different contexts. And our work suggests that, that HSP90 is one of those organizing factors. And the interesting thing is that sort of fitting with this theme, HSP90 organizes the signaling differently in the brain versus the spinal cord in our hands. 
In our hands, our work has suggested that HEAT-SHOCK protein 90 promotes ERK-MAP kinase, promotes opioid signaling in the brain. We don't yet know which circuits, which subregions, but in the brain. And thus, when you block HSP90 in the brain, you block ERK, you block antinociception. This is a very strong effect. We, this is in our uh, 2017 paper that we had. But we see the opposite in the spinal cord. Our work suggests that in the spinal cord, HSP90 is a break that's blocking and, and hampering the ERK-MAP kinase pathway, keeping it from being activated by the opioid receptor, and thus blocking antinociception. And thus, when you block HSP90 in the spinal cord, you've blocked the block, you've, you've taken your foot off the brake, you've now enabled opioid receptor in the spinal cord to couple to ERK-MAP kinase. We literally see it lights up in the dorsal horn. Wow. Lamina 1-2, just phospho ERK just lights up now in response to opioid where it didn't before. So an opioid, or the ERK becomes unchained, and we know it activates a downstream kinase called RISK, RSK, 1 and 2, and, uh, and that uh, thus couples to antinociception, and with, thus when you block HSP90 in the spinal cord, you get increased antinociception instead of decreased when you, when you block it in the brain. So it's sort of these opposite effects on organizing signal transduction. And so from a basic point of view, or basic science point of view, that's interesting, of course. We're all scholars, and we like to know how this stuff works. But you can use this to your advantage uh, therapeutically. We've started, started charting a path towards that. And so obviously the brain result, a blockade of antinociception, that's not what you want. No one wants to lose the, the pain relief. But the spinal cord, that piece may be able to, to help you out. We have a paper under review right now showing that when you block HSP90 in the spinal cord, you increase the therapeutic index of opioids. So in other words, morphine becomes more potent at treating pain, we have three different acute and chronic pain models we tested, more potent at treating pain, but uh, either the same or less side effects. So tolerance was decreased, strongly decreased, and uh, constipation and reward were the same. But the same is actually good in this case, because remember the, the potency versus the, the pain relief is increased. So that means you could give less opioid drug, achieve the same level of pain relief that you could before, like you, like you give half as much opioid, you give the same level of pain relief but your, your, because your uh, reward and your constipation have not changed, that's going to go down, and your tolerance should go down even further based on our work. Um, and so, th so that's the, the, the result in the spinal cord, and we sort of show that this could be beneficial. Um, of course, one of the limitations to that is that if you have to inject this stuff into the spinal cord, that's, there is some use to that, right? So there's like drugs like Prealt are injected into the spinal cord. There are chronic pain patients with intrathecal pumps. So this has some level of utility, but it's not the best, right? The best is if you could take a pill by mouth. And that's where we initially ran into a problem. Our results suggest that when you inhibit the whole system, the brain and the spinal cord together, the brain always wins. Like the brain, maybe it's descending modulation. We don't yet know why. Maybe descending modulation of the spinal cord. We're not sure what happened, but the brain always wins. And when the brain wins, the antinociception is blocked, which is not what you want. But these were all with non-selective HSP90 inhibitors. And when we started to dig into the details about which isoforms of HSP90 are involved in the brain versus the spinal cord, that's when we sort of made our breakthrough. So uh, in collaboration with Dr. Brian Blagg, a very prominent HSP90 medicinal chemist at Notre Dame, we started testing isoform selective inhibitors. There's four isoforms. We started hitting each one. We found that the brain was pretty selective. The brain, only HSP90, was involved in regulating antinociception in the brain. However, the spinal cord was a lot more promiscuous. Uh, 90, or sorry, alpha was involved, but, but beta and uh, another isoform called GRP94 were also involved. So you have the brain, you've got one, the spinal cord, you've got three. 
And then the idea was, well, you know, you take out the alpha, that's both. Maybe if you had a selective isoform that would only hit the beta and the GRIP94 in the spinal cord, it would be like injecting it into the spinal cord, but you could take it by mouth. And we actually just had a really nice, in the lab, we just had a really nice proof of concept for that. We took some of these isoform selective inhibitors, injected them IV, and we see the same benefits that we saw when we previously injected the non-selective inhibitor in the spinal cord. Antinosusception is increased, tolerance is rescued and reduced. That's great. Any side effects um, to it? Yeah, so we're going to be digging into that. That's a big part of what we're going to be digging into. We just got a good score in an R01 to investigate these isoform selective inhibitors as a therapeutic strategy. I mean, the sort of the, the literature to date sort of suggests that, sh that they should be pretty well tolerated, uh, but that's something that we need to evaluate for sure. Uh, but that's one of the benefits, too, of this isoform selectivity is, is each of the isoforms interacts with different proteins and does different things. When you only target the one, that's by nature going to reduce your potential side effect pool as well. Exactly. Congratulations. And so we're pursuing these. Congrats on the R01. That's always a good, that's always a good sign. Oh. Um, There's no guarantees. So well, <laughs> good score, but... Good, good score is, is already a good sign, definitely. Um, so you had mentioned that there's three isoforms of HSP90. Uh, where, uh, where are these isoforms expressed other than yeah. the spinal cord and the brain? And would that be a problem if you were targeting um, the two isoforms? <laughs> So the, the, the interesting thing is HSP90 is just sort of one of those key intracellular proteins that's in every cell. And it's, I don't know if it's in prokaryote. I can't remember if it's in prokaryotes, but it's in every eukaryote, including yeast. Uh, so it's one of those key central sort of cell biology proteins. It literally makes up two to 3% of the protein content. It's in every cell. So it's really important. Uh, but the isoforms do do different things. So the alpha and the beta are both uh, cytoplasmic and interact with a certain pool of proteins. Uh, GRP94 is in the endoplasmic reticulum, and TRAP1 is in the mitochondria. And so there are some regional differences in which isoforms express. So, um, you know, I, I can't recall all the details now, but sort of when you look at different tissues, you might get a different balance, or maybe you got one over the other. But there's gonna be some form of HSP90 in every cell. But, so, so you might think that would be a bad thing, right? That you're gonna have, you're just gonna have side effects galore, and that this is gonna be useless. I certainly have gotten that criticism. <laughs> uh, but there have been people working on HSP90 as a target for a long time, initially for cancer. And it, you know, for the first moment, you're like, wait a minute, you know, why does that matter? Cancer, you can take a lot of side effects in cancer and still be sort of an acceptable drug. And that's true. And it is also true that the first generation of HSP90 inhibitors in the clinic failed due to liver toxicity. However, the second generation and later compounds really do show pretty good tolerability for these non-selective inhibitors. Um, and, you know, they don't see that liver toxicity. And uh, so Brian Blagg, as I mentioned before, has, has is further found that another non-selective inhibitor, KU32, he has quite a few papers showing that that is not only not toxic, it actually promotes survival in neurons. And they were using it to uh, show benefit in diabetes-induced peripheral neuropathy. So a pain state, but pain state because the, the, the neurons are dying off due to the diabetes. And so that this sort of this inhibitor promoted neuronal survival and sort of treated this, this, uh, or this, this um, uh, condition. And now they're, they, they have a HSP-90 inhibitor in phase one trials as, as sort of a chronic thing. So you have this sort of this clinical literature building now showing that these, this is sort of a tolerable target, that you can hit this target even in vitro. It kills cancer cells really effectively. It doesn't really kill normal cells. Um, and you know, you, you have this stuff in the clinic now for chronic, for cr chronic, um, uh, 
conditions like diabetes, neuropathy, um, and those are non-selective. The, the selective inhibitors should be even more beneficial in terms of potential uh, side effects. So I think there's some, you know, there's some real potential here. And, you know, there are people in the literature looking at, at uh, other targets that are also are kind of broad in every cell doing lots of different things. So I don't, I think there's sort of this initial dogma that says you have to pick a low, a target that's only present in your cell population or as few cell populations as possible. I think the world is bigger than that and we can hit some broader targets. And if you could pick a target that's, you know, restricted to an area in the cell, I think that could be also advantageous. Um, if, if there is any way of caging that inhibitor and it only opens up in one area from of the cell, that could be really a, a cool, a nice, cool tool. Definitely. So like that could actually be used in the opioid field, like an aptamer or something like that. If you could get it to go <laughs> to the spinal cord and the pain processing centers in the brain and avoid the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens and so on, that of course would be uh, huge. Uh, hasn't happened yet, but yeah, if you could do that, that would be really beneficial. That would be really cool. So for HSP90 in general, remind me again, it's a heat shock protein. Is it uh, something like, uh, is it a kinase or, or how does it look? It's a protein where that allows other proteins to dock on it, kind of a chaperone? Yeah, it's a major chaperone. It actually looks like Pac-Man. That's how I describe it to my students. So it has the, <laughs> it's a dimer. It's got sort of these big, these big sort of almost linear sort of uh, subunits and they kind of bind to each other here, and then it literally does this okay. Pac-Man kind of thing, <laughs> driven by ATP hydrolysis. And when it's in the open conformation, of course, that allows it to you know, sort of uh, bind to its uh, target chaperone proteins, and then it kind of closes up, and has this whole cycle of opening and closing, and different conformations, different proteins will bind to the outside. And uh, there's a whole raft of co-chaperones that are more specifically expressed that sort of direct it towards specific targets. And so, you know, HSP90 is sort of this big, big protein that does a lot of different things, but all the individual little regulatory proteins that bind to it sort of direct it and tell it what to do in individual context. And that's also a potential way to go. So we have some studies looking at the co-chaperones and have shown some selectivity there too. So you might be able to target those co-chaperones to again, reduce your sort of your side effect pool. So these co-chaperones would be selective and different, for example, in the spinal cord versus the brain? Yeah, maybe. Oh, wow. Well, we do. We have some data showing that's the case, actually. So there's a chaperone called AHA1, AHA1, that we show is active in our, in our hands in the spinal cord, not active in the brain. We've also been able to show some, sort of some of the same benefits to targeting that, that molecule. Um, but but so, so just to brief, kind of wrap up on what it does. So that it, it's Pac-Man, uh, but it's not only a chaperone. So it does assist in protein folding, but that's only one of its roles. So it, it does a lot of scaffolding and organization sort of bringing proteins together that need to be together for, prop, for, 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 for proper function. Uh, it has a major role in regulating signaling, which of course interests me, in sort of enabling kinases to be activated, not, again, not just as a folding kind of way, but sort of keeping them in the right uh, conformation to be phosphorylated and activated. Um, you know, controls localization within the cell, you know, so it does a lot of, a lot of different things. Yeah, talk about repurposing the, the function of a protein in the cell. Yeah. Yeah, cells are smart at the end of the day when you think about it. The way I try to describe this stuff to my students, particularly signaling, is uh, people tend to think of these, each of the individual nodes is really specific that only does one thing. The way I try to teach my students is that these are not really that specific. These are more like a diode or a capacitor or a component in a circuit. And actually neurons are kind of the same way, right? Um, and a diode in 
you know, your, your uh, I don't know, your radio at home and a diode in a nuclear bomb could be exactly the same component, but do radically different things depending on how they're organized. And so when you organize these molecules into a molecular circuit in a particular way, you get a particular outcome. Uh, and that's, that's kind of my reigning hypothesis for how the lab runs. It's, it's nice. It's a nice imaged way of looking at it. And all these circuits get rewired depending on the cellular context and on, on the organ uh, yeah. that you're looking at. So um, you're talking about HSP90 and its, its role in pain and nociception. If you had to come up with a drug that, you know, um, helps with, with pain, where would this drug act? Well, our idea would be that it would you take it by mouth. I mean, in an ideal world, you take it by mouth, and because it's isoform selective, it's only, it's going to go to your brain, but it's only going to act, at least in our you know for pain and antinociception, it's only going to act in the spinal cord. Okay, so and it wouldn't target the receptor; it would target HSP nine or some component of the circuitry with with reduced side effects, ideally. As far as we can tell, it's not altering how the receptor itself is expressed. Well, we know it's not altering how it's expressed. We're pretty sure it's not really altering how it signals. Uh, it's just like, what can it couple to downstream? That seems to be changed. Okay. In other words, organization. Would you, would you envision a world where you would be also targeting the receptor at the same time and try to reduce side effects? Yeah, right. I mean, why not? If you could combine, let, let's say biased agonists end up being you know, the, the, the way to go. You, you know, there's nothing to me that says you couldn't combine these things together. Right, so you could have a biased agonist um, that has some benefits on the arrestant side, and then you combine that with the sort of this downstream HSP90 modulator that we've shown can improve the therapeutic index. I mean, in principle, I, I don't see why those couldn't help each other out and just further add to the benefit. Why not? And would you want to hit a delta opioid or a mu opioid receptor, or which one would be the the best to go for? Right, so I, I think you got to hit the mu in some respects. Well, there's. There's some potential for the delta and the kappa themselves as sort of pure to hit those alone and produce antinociception, uh, but those are sort of uncertain at this stage. There's been some clinical failures for the delta. Uh, kappa agonism is burdened by dysphoria and sedation and uh, uh, lots of urination. I can't remember okay. the proper term for okay. that. Um, and so there's downsides to that approach. It it really you know everyone kind of keeps coming back to the mu and and so, so maybe there's some uh, multi, so I mentioned the multi-targeted ligands that hit the mu and, and manipulate the delta and the kappa or other targets. You know, maybe you can combine those two. There's nothing to say that you couldn't. That's great. That's great. Um, so you had mentioned a little bit from, that you were first interested in signaling and then you got interested in the upstream signaling events and receptors. What would be your advice for young scientists who are starting to work in the field? Uh, keep good records. Uh, be really nice to your people. <laughs> it's like, I guess you wanted scientific advice. I have a lot to say on, on being a PI. Um, but, uh, you know, look out for politics at the university. Um, but, uh, let me see. So scientifically, ironically enough, I don't necessarily think it's a great idea to go for something that's completely novel, um, that no one has ever really studied before. I thought that was going to be the ticket, right? I'm like, okay, people, HSP90, we saw these, I, what the way, actually the way I started is we started trolling through proteomic studies. So people have been, done like proteomic studies in the brain with chronic morphine treatment, like this kind of thing. And of course they would report on like five or 10, but then you've got a list of like 200. 
like, oh, let's trawl through these 200 and we'll find completely novel targets. That's how we kind of came across HSP90 to begin with and started playing with it and saw good results. And my thought was naively, this is going to be great. Like, you know, this is completely novel. Everyone's going to love it. <laughs> this is the ticket. And ironically, I just encountered a lot of skepticism that, you know, oh, this, you know, no one studied this before. Is this really real? You know, so I think you can easily run into that trap as a junior scientist. Um, so I, it's not like I've got the, the key to figuring this all out, but, you know, pick something that is novel, but is sort of still in the tent and is sort of still accepted by other people to prevent yourself from running into excessive skepticism. You know, so maybe you do biased agonists and you pick a different receptor target um, or, you know, some, something sort of a little, a little bit different, not completely different, at least to get started. Uh, I mean, ideally, you have the kind of postdoc mentor that will help you, give you a platform to jump off from in terms of uh, projects and so on. Uh, but if you don't, just sort of pick something that's a little bit different, um, but still novel, and then build from there. And then hopefully that once you've sort of got some credibility, that'll let you really go off the reservation and, and try to find uh, something really new. Yeah, or if you have the time, the energy, you can uh, run the projects in parallel. You know, do do right. what's the kind of safest project but at the same time if you have a crazy idea just just try it and I'll, i will say too there's sort of the i just it's easy to get discouraged um in science you know rejection is kind of the norm it's the norm for me um but you know i've i've gotten kind of i mean i have gotten kind of lucky i have been fortunate i have to acknowledge that but there's still a place to be in this field to be in science in advance without having the typical markers that everyone thinks you need to have. Like you don't have to have a bunch of cell neuroscience, cell neuroscience, uh, cell neuro neuroscience, cell neuron science. Oh my God, my brain is fried. So you don't have to have a bunch of CNS papers to get a faculty job. You don't have to have a K99 to get a faculty job. Now maybe you have to have that to get a job at UCSF, but you don't have to get have that to get a faculty job. So I started I came out of Laura's lab with uh, some decent papers, but nothing amazing. I did not have an F32 or a K99. And I got a job as a uh, assistant professor at a smaller university, the University of New England, which had some you know, strong alums in the pain field. So Tamara King, Ed Bilski, uh, Ian Meng. So these were sort of well-known people in the pain field. But this was a small university that was looking to build its research profile. And there was a place for someone that didn't have funding, that didn't have huge papers, where, you know, just the fact that I had a good postdoc and published decently was itself like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, <laughs> come work for us and help us build our research. And I was able to build from there. I was able to, you know, get some projects running, got a few small foundation grants and sort of built, built up where I could then become competitive to come work at a place like the University of Arizona, where I've continued to sort of build from there. So there is still a way forward, even if you don't have those traditional markers that you think you might think you have to have uh, in order to be successful in academic science. But you know it's still challenging at the end of the day, and you still have to have some luck to it. I won't deny it. What are the what are some of the challenges that you're you're facing, and how do you think? I mean, how do you cope with that, and how do you work every get up every day and go to the lab and and you know persevere? Right. It is stressful, but honestly, the stress for me of of faculty it's there, but it, maybe it's just my personality. But for me, it's less than what I was experiencing as a postdoc. Because I, for better or for worse, I kind of have more control over myself and what happens. So that sense of control gives, makes it easier for me to kind of deal with it. It's not as big of a deal. Whereas when I was a postdoc, I mostly felt out of my control. Um, so that, you know, that to me makes a big difference. And, but there are some stresses. So uh, 
some of the primary ones are, of course, securing funding to keep my lab paid. So, I mean, I start, I'll just, I'll throw numbers out there. I'm a very open person. I, uh, I got a, I had a startup package of $750,000 at the University of Arizona, which sounds like a lot, uh, but actually is not much and goes really fast, particularly if you have to buy equipment. And the reality is that if I hadn't have come in as a co-investigator on some existing grants that help supplement those funds, um, I wouldn't have, I maybe could have had like a one or a two person lab, two or three person lab, and really focused on one project to make it happen. Because I had some of those additional resources is, you know, not prominent ones, but a co-investigator to sort of help keep one person paid, to help keep the stuff rolling. That gave me a bit more room to bring in more people into the lab and to explore different projects. So I didn't have all my eggs in one basket. I have now three or four main projects in the lab that are all sort of different from each other that we didn't even talk about today. Um, that are all sort of progressing towards funding and that gives you more shots at it, right? Because sometimes you can make progress on a project like let's like I've had my challenges with HSP 90 and their viewers might just be like, well, this just isn't interesting and you can bang your head against that. And then by the time you try to develop something new, maybe you only have $10,000 left in your startup package and time's running low. And so, so keeping everyone paid, making sure my graduate students graduate, you know, so these are major concerns and at least to date, the funding has been kind of like always at the last minute getting something to kind of keep the ball rolling. So it's like juggling and you're almost dropped the ball. Oh, I caught it. Almost dropped the ball. I caught it. And so that's, you know, getting two-year grants and three-year grants, smaller grants, new investigator grants to, to supplement those funds, keep everything paid and keep it rolling. And that is kind of one of those stresses as well. And then again, combined with constant rejection. Um, the, honestly, the, the papers aren't so bad. Um, yeah, you, you get rude comments and stuff from the reviewers on your papers, but it's easy enough to turn those around and they at least usually go back to the same reviewers. Whereas the grant process, at least at NIH, it's like an eight month turnaround uh, after a rejection. And you know who knows if your, if your uh, resubmission is gonna go to the same people that reviewed it the first time, often it doesn't. And those new people could have a whole different set of problems with you than the last people did. And you know that's been a common experience with all of us. So the, the, the grant situation for me is definitely the hardest uh, bit, bit to deal with. Hopefully we've now turned that, turned that table a little bit with a good score on an R1. Uh, but, you know, there's no getting around it. It's tough. It's tough, but I think if you, if you don't give up, you try to do your best, the best science you can. And also engage with collaborations that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, it always helps to be on different grants, work on different projects, and uh, just move forward. Yes, I, I can say being very collegial and very collaborative is definitely rewarding. So you know, at least it doesn't get people mad at you that might be your reviewers, <laughs> but also gives you, opens up new vistas and new projects. Um, you know, let your students have some freedom. So one of the main projects in my lab came from a side project that my student was just interested in because he was interested in it. And I said, sure, go for it and on, on intermittent fasting of all things, which I never would have studied on my own. And it's turned out really interesting. It's really cool. Um, so, you know, give, give them some, a little bit of freedom, you know, maybe not total freedom, but a little bit of freedom at least. And, uh, um, you know, be a good mentor, be a good colleague and, yeah. and start to build that reputation, build that network. Uh, it, it takes time, uh, but it helps. Definitely. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you about this, this paper about intermittent fasting. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? it sounds very interesting. And there is yeah. a lot of, you know, um, posts on Facebook and on, um, on social media talking about, you know, intermittent fasting for humans. So what did it do uh, in, in the case of mice? And it was pretty amazing, actually. So, I, you know, I'll, I was as skeptical as anyone else because I think you, you say intermittent fasting, the average person like, oh, fad diet, right? 
yeah. like or a hundred a hundred websites from ripped looking guys and gals that are trying to sell you a, a product or yeah. or a program or whatever. So that that's the perception. Uh, but again, one of my students, David Duran, um, very good student, is very interested in fitness. And he was interested in this idea of intermittent fasting. You know, he'd seen all the same things we had and said, I want to try it out in the mice, see what happens. And I kind of was like, sure, you know, why not? Give the guy some freedom. I didn't expect anything. I, I figured if anything, it would just do nothing. Uh, but it actually had an amazing benefit for opioid antinociception and side effects. Uh, so first of all, it increased the antinociceptive effect of morphine in multiple different pain models, not just tail flick or whatever, you know, multiple relevant neuropathy, surgical, uh, and tail flick pain model. And so it increased the apparent efficacy of morphine in all of these models. And it either blocked or reduced all the side effects we tested to date, which I wouldn't have expected. Uh, strongly reduced tolerance, reduced constipation, and remarkably completely blocked reward, or at least reward learning. We used a condition place preference assay. Okay. And so that's real, I wouldn't have expected that for sure. To, to block the rewarding effects of morphine. Um, and then we, we dug into, the, we just got the first hint of mechanism. We did some uh, receptor signaling assays in the brain, different parts of the brain and the spinal cord, and found that the receptor itself seemed to be functioning better with, it, with this fasting diet condition uh, than they were previously. So in the spinal cord, the receptor had actually increased efficacy. Uh, and, and in the PAG, the periaqueductal grade, it had reduced tolerance. So we also did a tolerance regimen. And so that's just receptor signaling. We haven't yet definitively tied that. Uh, that, that was just published in pain. Uh, and going forward, you know, what are the, the molecular links between these two, between these factors, between the diet change and, and the opioid function? Um, we're gonna start to dig into that. I wanna do a proteomic study. Um, and there's some, there is some literature to sort of suggest this might be real in the opposite direction. So not on intermittent fasting, but on just acute fasting and restriction. And the upshot of that literature seems to be that if you acute fat, if you uh, calorically restrict or sort of acutely fast, it's just more of a stressor and it actually makes things worse. You know, it, it makes reward worse. It makes these things worse in your brain. Whereas the, perhaps the intermittent fasting is more sort of like a, a good stress, you know? Yeah, so like back to my days of heart, maybe the difference between pressure overload and you know, going jogging yeah. once a day. Right. Um, and maybe that has some beneficial official effects. So we're looking at, you know, glucocorticoids, maybe BDNF. We want to do a proteomic study to sort of dig into that mechanism. And of course, this is really translational. Right. So we don't have to go through a 10 year IND process to get this into people. We could do this tomorrow. Uh, and there's uh, one of my colleagues, Moab Ibrahim here at the U of A, is very interested in working with us on this to actually try this in uh, clinical uh, patients yep. and see if it improves their their pain and their use of, of opioids. That's so fascinating. Did these mice get a different diet or they got the regular diet? They only had the intermittent fasting. Yeah, same chow. Uh, so they got it for six day or sorry, six hours a day from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's during their light cycle, which is like the middle of the night for us. Right. So it may be even better if we gave it if we did this during their dark cycle, their active yeah. phase. Uh, and then we did it for seven days and we're just starting to look into you know, varying the timing. So another student of mine, Philip Hanak, who's going to do his master's work on this. Mm -hmm. um, so we're already sort of seeing a dose-dependent effect where at four days, it's like increase just a little bit. Five days, it's, a, you know, more. And seven days is more. But then like, what if we did it for two weeks or a month? Will it be even better? Um, yeah. You stop the diet. How long does it take to go away? Like, these are some of the questions we want to address. That's, that's really cool. I've been uh, reading a lot about intermittent fasting and, you know, making sure that your body has the key nutrients 
to to recover and depending so insulin that might be something that you might, might yeah. want to look at insulin levels and how long you know um, how long it takes for the insulin levels to drop down yep. after after they eat but apparently the longer you fast uh, the better you can control this with what's called insulin resistance Yep. And I'm I'm pretty sure it would be really really awesome to to learn more about pain and also uh, the fasting. I've also seen a documentary about intermittent fasting, and there was this patient, this cancer patient, who uh, went for her chemotherapy fasting, and there were less side effects to her chemo yeah. when she went fasting compared to when she had food before right before the the treatment and as you said you don't need 10 years of, of work you just need to try the the fasting method yeah absolutely and there's been other you know i don't want to pretend i'm a pioneer i am a pioneer in terms of opioids and pain but i'm not a pioneer for intermittent fasting research so there's plenty of people out there that have shown the benefits in inflammation in uh you know even a nerve i think neurodegenerative disease so there's a lot of studies out there and i don't want to pretend like i'm the only one uh, but we did make us a, a, a we were sort of the first for uh, opioids and pain therapy um, and we hope to follow up on that because it's, you know, I'm normally a pretty skeptical, hard-headed person, but the data is the data and I'm going to follow it and it has a great benefit yep. and we don't have to worry about side effects and, and exactly. you know, INDs and all the rest of it. So if we can help people. Yeah, let's try it out. Exactly. Exactly. Was um, one of my questions that I had sent you was what were the top three to five aha moments uh, in your career as a scientist? Was this one of those moments? Well, I mean, I didn't sort of have a realization. It was just seeing the data, just like, yeah, it's kind of an aha because you're expecting something else and then something else happens. But it's not like I had to like a revelation or, a, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, look at that. That's not what I expected. Um, so I have had a few of those moments. They usually tend to occur in the shower <laughs> where I'm just like randomly thinking about nothing in particular or thinking about my projects. And it's like, oh, what if I tried that? So one of the key ones for me is when I was in grad school. Um, I was studying, as I mentioned, the role of P38 and this downstream kinase uh, MAP-CAP2 in, um, in, uh, in heart failure. And I thought, oh, you know, what if I looked at COX-2? And that, that actually ended up being a really, really kind of a big stream in that. Um, but in general, there haven't been too many moments like that, right? So it's, it's, for me, it's just more of a, of a process of building. Oh, well, on the HSP90 thing, there was... What got us started, as I mentioned, is we were digging through proteomics, and then uh, we were kind of trying a few different things in the lab. This was back at the University of New England. Nothing much was looking that big of a deal, and we were trying it in um, an arrest and recruitment assay, which is uh, the transfloor assay. So it's arrest and GFPs. So you have these green cells, right? And you look at how the the green, you know, the diffuse green turns into a little punctite green. Um, and so, and then we put this 17 AAG, this HSP90 inhibitor on there. And I looked at the cells and they were like way less green. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, that's kind of shocking. And that actually ended up not being that important in terms of the overall um, project. Like we haven't really tied it to arrestin or anything like that, but that was such a big effect that it really kind of like, oh, let's, let's see what, what's going to happen and what's, what's uh, the deal is here. Uh, and we followed to follow that up and now it's turned into a major project. Uh, sometimes following the science uh, can can be rewarding and it can also be very very fun um before we wrap up um if you have job openings in in your lab where do those ads go uh before you answer that question uh on my website we do have a career page if you have any job ads that you would like us to share it's free just send us the information and we'll be yeah. happy to share it 
definitely. Well, I, I may not be the best example because I don't often have to advertise. Um, I usually have enough people that are kind of always asking uh, to kind of keep everything, keep everything staffed. And I prefer students when I can. So we have a lot of grad students in the lab. Um, but, you know, we have postdocs and professionals, too. Uh, and in terms of ads, the, the one place or the places I always go, I like to send to the uh, INRC, the International Narcotics Research Conference listserv. Um, there's a pain basic science listserv run by Linda Watkins out of Colorado. So I sort of like to send to those sort of more community, yep. you know, those pain and opioid community sort of listservs rather than sending it out to the universe. I mean, I think the UA, as a matter of course, just puts the stuff up on like the UA job site. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't have a lot of insight to offer there to potential job seekers, but I'm happy to put anything on your on your website. That Absolutely. Up. It's dedicated to GPCR and GPCR related research. On the what what I've noticed is that if you're looking for a GPCR gig, whether it's uh, you know in in academia, but mostly in industry, it's very hard to find these. So we're trying to put them all on one place. Anybody in love with any GPCR, they can go up there and and find what they're what they're looking for. Um, I know it's not possible at the moment, but uh, what are your favorite conferences that you like to go to? <laughs> So I, I mentioned INRC, so I usually go to INRC every year. Yeah. Uh, that one's kind of fun because it's a bit smaller, mm -hmm. so it's a little bit more intimate, right? So everyone can interact more. Um, you know, it tends to be, this is kind of a plus and a minus, but it's kind of the same people, yeah. <laughs> more or less. But that's good because, you know, you can see the same people. You develop relationships over time. Um, and it's usually in fun places. So it was supposed to be in Valencia, Spain wow. in, uh, in like a week from now or two weeks from now. <laughs> Sad I missed missed that one. Uh, so I usually go to INRC. Um, I usually go to experimental biology. So as a GPCR signaling kind of person, that one usually tends to be a bit more, uh, there's a bit more there for me. Um, I'm a member of ASPET, the American Society for Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. That's one of the member societies in experimental biology. Uh, so I like to go there. Very large, you know, a lot of things going on. Um, I usually go to Society for Neuroscience. Again, just you know, everything you could want to do with the neuroscience anyways is there. And so sort of for me, each one kind of has a different focus or a different group of people I tend to encounter, but together those are the three main ones that I usually go to. Um, and my students tend to like either SFN or, or EB. Got it. Got it. I don't know if you've saw this, but we're also organizing a virtual GPCR summit. Mm -hmm. You're welcome to take a look. It's drgpcr.com slash summit dash 2020. Um, I did notice that. I'd love to take part. Absolutely. Uh, just register and we'll have information out on the website pretty soon on how to how to attend and how to submit. But the idea is to have everybody under the same vir virtual roof this year. Uh, and, you know, I know we're missing all our regular conferences. For example, I go to the Great Lakes GPCR meeting and it's not going to happen until next year. So it's something that we're trying to work on hard to get us all, uh, you know, excited, keep the excitement around GPCRs. Uh, you know, life. Well, I actually do like that because those conferences I mentioned, most of the people I'm around are more focused on sort of pain and, mm -hmm. and opioids more broadly. But I've been saying to myself for a while, I need to go to a more GPCR signaling focused place, even if it's not relevant to opioids and pain, um, you know, Gordon conference. And I think this could be a very, very nice uh, thing to do. Absolutely. So thank you. Of course, of course. We, we look forward to having you uh, registered and students are also uh, uh, welcome to register. It's free. And uh, that's the whole point of getting us all of us together and uh, talk about GPCRs. Very cool. Thank you, John, for your time. Uh, um, I really Thank you for yours. It.
I really appreciated the discussion and uh, good luck with the R01. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye. Thanks, bye. All right. Hi, John. Uh, welcome back. How are you today? Good, Yamina. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to reach back out and talk to you a little bit about how you were doing with this whole COVID situation and how it impacted you, your lab, and, and your research, if you can tell us more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we basically completely shut down to start with, right? So uh, you know, whenever that was, March, April, when, whenever it really started to go down, the University of Arizona um, shut down. I mean, we would have done it anyway, but they basically shut down all, all, all non-essential research. So you had to apply for a specific waiver to do, you know, like student completion, like if you had a student that needed two more experiments to finish their thesis that semester kind of thing, obviously COVID related, or like truly crucial things like, you know, a year long experiment that will be lost if you don't do it, right? So those were the sorts of research that was being allowed. And I did actually get a waiver just to make sure that I that my students could graduate. I had two grad students graduating, Justin and, and David, um, but we didn't really use it. So I couldn't really justify it. Uh, we didn't really need to be essential. And so everyone stayed home. So we would have lab meetings. We actually still have lab meetings by Zoom. Um, and you know we did we wrote a fair number of papers, still writing those, and sort of more focusing on on the those intellectual aspects. And then uh, more recently, a few weeks ago, the University of Arizona moved us to phase three of their recovery, which means that you can start to come back, not the way it was before, but you know, under restrictions. So you know, everyone wears masks, everyone distances. So uh, as you can see, I'm in my office, but uh, you know, the door is shut and there's no one in here, so I can kind of keep my mask off. But otherwise, I've got my mask uh, that I wear all around the university. And we, we really tried to keep to that spirit in the lab, right? So not just business to usual. We had an online calendar. People scheduled their time. Everyone's always wearing their mask in the lab, distanced. Uh, we have a couple different rooms, so thankfully we, we kind of spread some people out. But, of course, there's still some, some cross-mixing there. And that actually became a problem because not long after we opened up, one of my students uh, caught COVID. He tested positive for COVID. Now, thankfully, um, he's asymptomatic. He's completely fine. Uh, didn't ever really get sick. And he also caught it from his roommate, not the rest of the lab. So we knew that it, our lab wasn't the vector, which is good. But still, of course, we had, even with masks, we had had people sitting in the same room as him and you know, people talking and, and mixing. Um, and so this was a test of our procedures, right? So everyone went out. And, well, we shut the lab down again. Everyone went out, got the COVID tests, and no one's really gotten sick. And thankfully, all the COVID tests came back negative. So now we're starting to ramp up back up again. Uh, but that shows you the danger that we're under, but also shows you that if you actually do follow these procedures, I think they can, they can really help. Definitely. And wearing a mask is always, is always helpful and, and useful. Um, how is the morale in the lab with, you know, moving from regular lab meeting to, to Zoom meetings? Yeah, I think everyone's doing pretty good. You know, spirits are up. Um, we, we have missed some things, right? So again, I mentioned we had two students graduate, so we couldn't have the usual you know, blowout uh, graduation bash. There was no graduation to go to. Um, you know, there was like a YouTube video for commencement for the grad students. So, you know, a lot of those, that had to hurt them, I know. Um, and so, yeah, that that's a hit. But, you know, everyone is being paid. Um, you know, no one's lost their job. All the students are graduating if on time if they're still working. And, 
Um, and now that we're starting to ramp back up, I think some of that antsiness at being confined is at least now starting to be channeled a little bit into lab work. So I think the morale is pretty good. Uh, but, you know, we had a fairly fortunate situation. And, um, you know, we were fortunate enough that not have the money issues. Everyone could still be paid. And that takes a lot of stress off and just kind of keeping things reasonable. It does. It does take the stress off knowing that, you know, you have the funds to pay everyone. Um, what are the next steps for you to ramp up research? What are you, um, what are you working on currently? Right. So, you know, for us, it's kind of business as usual because I can't really think of a way to connect any of them. Uh, excuse me. Sorry about that. Because uh, I really can't think of a way to connect anything that I do to COVID. Right? So some people have tried to make those tenuous connections. You know, there have been a lot of weird papers coming out recently. Um, I'm not one of them. So I was like, well, I can't really connect opioids and pain and, and the signaling work that we do to COVID. I just don't have the expertise even if I wanted to. So we're sort of proceeding in our, in our established projects and our established directions. It hasn't really changed much. Just slowed down due to the distancing needs and the scheduling that has to happen. And did you have anyone come in? So you had mentioned that you had closed shut down the lab, but you do mouse work. Uh, who was taking care of the mice at that during those times? Well, again, thankfully, we're kind of fortunate. So as a, as a scientific decision years ago, we, we really try to keep everything in wild-type mice. So we use wild-type CD1 mice, which gives you some benefits versus the, uh, I mean, some drawbacks too, but gives you some benefits versus a genetic model. And because all of our mice were wild-type and just bought from the vendor, uh, we didn't really have to worry about breeding and continuing that up. So the UA vivarium is still running. You know, there's still um, you know, staff and veterinarians and so on to help take care of the animals to keep that stuff running. But we just used up all the mice. You know, as, as the shutdown was coming, we used it up, stopped ordering, and thus we were able to just kind of ride right through. Um, it, we're, we're really, we really were lucky in a lot of ways. So we had the mouse aspect helped. Um, the, the funding situation helped that everyone could continue to be paid. We were at a sort of a natural transition point in the lab anyway, because we had two graduate students that were wrapping up. So they were, you know, writing and really not being active anyway. They were graduating. Uh, new people coming in, but hadn't really like got their projects really rolling yet. So I have two new grad students that just joined. And so that was sort of a natural break point anyway. And we had a ton of data sitting around that on the slow point, to be honest, to get published. So we, this year we've gotten four papers published primarily from our lab. And I've got another three that we're working on and that we just need to write them. And I'm again, the slow point. And so it, we're, we're, we really kind of got lucky with that timing in a lot of ways. That's great. That's great. I was speaking to uh, Paul Insel a couple of uh, weeks ago and he said that though he's obviously not in the lab, he's working from home, but I loved the expression that he used that he's doing armchair science at the moment where they're writing papers, they're looking at, and you know, COVID research and trying to tie it back to GPCRs and publishing a lot without even setting foot in the lab. But um, I mean, I don't have much of a pipeline that way. Right. So my lab is really not very information based and like, so we're not modeling, we're not, you know, doing a lot of analytics, that, that kind of thing. It's really very experimental. Yeah. So, of course, we, we just got lucky with the timing that we're able to publish so much. You know, normally the data ends, everything ends. Um, and we don't have much ability to, you know, make contributions without an active wet lab. Uh, but we still got lucky with the timing. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Did you, and did you do anything special during these Zoom meetings to, you know, assess uh, lab, lab people's more the people's uh, morale and, you know, get them, uh, 
cheered up, especially if everybody was confined at home. Uh, everyone actually was in pretty good spirits. We still had some lab uh, Zoom happy hours, you know? Oh. So that's always good, right? So we had, <laughs> had some uh, events like that. Not as good as a real thing, but, you know, it was fun. Obviously. Did you connect multiple times a week to make sure that everybody was on track? At least once a week. And then, of course, I'm always available by email and phone, text, and all the rest. But really, without people doing active experiments, we only really had a few that really were working on something that really needed much guidance. So, you know, the two students that were working on papers and theses, um, my postdocs working on a paper. So, you know, in general, we don't have a lot of, you know, backup data to analyze or whatever. So there wasn't that much guidance really needed. Okay. So I, but we stay connected at least once a week. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, John, for being here today. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this special Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We look forward to having you attend the Dr. GPCR summit next week. If you'd like to sponsor us, please visit drgpcr.com slash sponsor. Thank you to Dr. John Stryker, Attila Forrest, music by Rosa Bershish. We also want to take a moment to thank our very talented and dedicated science communicators, Shivani Sachdev and Jin Chong. I'm your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish. Don't forget to join us next week for the Dr. GPCR Summit. Thank you for the privilege of your time. Until next time, stay safe.